everybody. How are you? Uh, I, like Dan, am so grateful for this weather. Oh my gosh. You know, I know we've already done it, but can we just be thankful for just a moment of that we have a spring in Tallahassee that's lasting more, longer than like seven minutes, right? You know, if you're, new to, if you're new to this part of the world, you know, I've lived here for about nine years, but if you're new to this part of the world, in my experience, spring in Tallahassee lasts like truly about seven minutes, you know, and like we go straight from winter to like 178 degrees uh, in the blink of an eye. And so to have a two-week run right now, I think, of, of, you know, 40s and 50s in the morning and like, you know, 80s in the afternoon. Every morning you can see me like cruising around Tallahassee with my, my tunes blaring. Um, I'm not going to tell you what I'm listening to, but I just love it. I love it. Elevates my spirit. So if, if you're not with me, I know, I know uh, Pastor Lori would, would be having the heat on and the windows up in the morning, but that's her car. My car. Windows down, I'm cruising. We're starting this series, as Dan said, on Philippians, which is one of my favorite books of the New Testament. I will confess that. And if you have an E3 Bible or you're near an E3 Bible, you want to be near an E3 Bible, it's on page 708. Uh, I don't know where it is in your Bible, but that's where it is in our black E3 Bible. So if you wanna go there, and if you have your Bible, you can start flipping there. Uh, what we're gonna do is jump straight in to this text. Um, and I'm going to start off with the first 11 verses of, uh, the bi of this book. I'm going to talk a little bit about context, right? If you're studying the Bible at all, if you ever study the Bible in any kind of formal setting, what you will hear is that context is everything. Context, context, context. You do not read the Bible without context. <clears throat> and sometimes... Context means everything from the context of an ancient language. The Bible's an ancient book. It's written in Greek, Hebrew. What's that word mean? To the context of the sentence that it's in, the paragraph that it's in, the book that it's in, the testament that it's in, all the way to the historical context. Things mean something to these ancient people, and they also mean something to us. That's the wonder of the Bible, is that it's, thousands of years old and yet still alive and relevant to us today. But because of the way I'm wired, I love digging into that ancient, like what did this mean to the people who first wrote it? Why did Paul write it the way he wrote it? So we're gonna talk today a little bit, actually a lot about the context of Philippians, in particular, uh, the town of Philippi what was going on in that town. Because I think, in my opinion, more than any other book in the New Testament, the town of Philippi determines the words of the letter of Philippians. And we're gonna get into why I think that. Paul goes straight to the heart of it. So here's the way he starts the letter. The words will be on the screen too, but if you wanna follow along in your Bible, Paul says this. Uh, this letter is from Paul and Timothy slaves of Christ Jesus. And I am writing to all of God's holy people in Philippi who belong to Christ Jesus, including the elders and deacons. May God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. Every time I think of you, I give thanks to my God. Whenever I pray, I make my requests for all of you with joy. For you have been my partners in spreading the good news about Christ from the time you first heard it 
until now. And I am certain that God, who began the good work within you, will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. So it is right that I should feel as I do about all of you, for you have a special place in my heart. You share with me the special favor of God, both in my imprisonment and in defending and confirming the truth of the good news. God knows how much I love you and long for you with the tender compassion of Christ Jesus. I pray that your love will overflow more and more and that you will keep on growing in knowledge and understanding. For I want you to understand what really matters so that you may live pure and blameless lives until the day of Christ's return. May you always be filled with the fruit of your salvation, the righteous character produced in your life by Jesus Christ. For this will bring much glory and praise to God. Those are beautiful words to me. I don't know if they mean anything to anybody else, but um, they, they virtually explode off the page to me. And before we get into the particulars of those words, uh, like I said, I wanna back up and I wanna talk about the place of Philippi, the town of Philippi, because Paul is writing to a specific group of people in this place. So first of all, uh, Philippi, we have a map of, that just locates Philippi. It's kind of up there in the, the center top of the map. It's in a place called Macedonia, right? Uh, it's changed, it's named Philippi in 356 BC by a guy named Philip who really wanted a town named after him. Um, Philip the Great in Macedon. Anybody, a little history buff, anybody know who Philip's son is? Yeah, it's Colin Farrell. <laughs> Colin Farrell. Uh, Alexander the Great. Anybody ever see, anybody see this movie? Like, I think like 25 people saw it in the United States. I could not get through it. I really tried. And this is coming from a history buff. I'm like, Alexander, great. It's, it's not a great movie. Great man, great, not, not a great movie. Uh, Philip in 356 BC, he uh, it starts an empire and he names this town after himself. His son expands his empire all the way across the ancient Near East and the Mediterranean. He has a huge empire. And then Alexander dies. The empire fractures between, I think, three of his generals. And it stays in place. It spreads Greek culture all over the Mediterranean, all over the ancient Near East. And then another empire comes in after Alexander's, the Roman Empire. Rome comes in uh, in uh, 168. Um, the Roman Empire begins. And then uh, we, we fast forward in time, but we also keep touching on, on sort of literary history uh, Around 60, 50, 40 BC, there's a guy named Julius Caesar. Everyone ever heard of Julius Caesar and had a salad named after him? Um, Julius Caesar decides to become the emperor of Rome, takes Rome from being a republic to an empire. And, and, and in the empire, people are divided about this. Some people are pro-Caesar, they're pro-empire. Some people are really not happy about what he's doing. And so uh, some people conspire to assassinate Julius Caesar, and Shakespeare writes a play about it, right? Julius Caesar. Anybody remember who assassinates Caesar? Brutus. A tu brute is the name for, is the phrase from Caesar. And what happens is that after Caesar's assassinated, there are these two political factions that divide. And you got the people who uh, assassinated or responsible for the assassination. You have Brutus, and Brutus allies himself with a guy named Cassius, 
another Roman leader. And then on the opposite side, you've got two guys who were friends of Caesar. One guy was a friend of Caesar named Mark Antony. And then Caesar's nephew is a guy named Octavian. So they get ready and they go to war. They go to war to avenge Caesar and to fight for the soul of the empire. And in um, 42 BC, they fight the defining battle of this civil war. Where else but at Philippi? So you have uh, Antony and Octavian versus Brutus and Cassius. And uh, the, the pro-Caesar forces defeat the assassins. It's decisive, game over. Um, now, Octavian becomes Caesar Augustus. And he actually is the emperor when Jesus is active in his ministry. So you see all this, all this ancient history flows in, into and out of the Bible in such miraculous ways, okay? But here's where, here's where things get really interesting for our purposes, for the purpose of the letter. Because um, uh, after the battle and as Philip becomes emperor, I'm, I'm sorry, Octavian becomes emperor, Emperor Augustus Caesar, he decides to go back to Philippi and, and confer a special status on the city because it was representative of this battle he fought. And he decides to make Philippi a Roman colony, which is very, very significant for our discussions today. Okay, the Roman Empire is vast, but not every place in the Roman Empire is a colony. Jerusalem, Israel, not a colony. Philippi, specifically is designated as a colony of Rome, all right? Philippi has one other uh, cool significance. There's this road that, the Romans are really good at building roads. And it's one of the reasons they were so good at empire. And they create this thing called the Via Ignatia. And we think we have a map of it. It goes uh, from Rome, crosses this, and it goes all the way to Constantinople or Istanbul. This is the Via Ignatia. And you see right there sort of in the middle, it goes right by Philippi. So in a place where, you know, long distance of travel is not easy, roads and secure roads and ways of communication are really important. So Philippi lies right on the Via Ignatia, which by the way, parts of this road, the Romans are such good road builders that this road still exists. Like you can still go to Europe and see this Roman road from, you know, 2,000 plus years. I mean, we have... You know, we can't even fix potholes in Tallahassee, but the Romans, they had it going on. Um, so, uh, so Augustus Caesar says Philippi is now going to be a colony. And what's more, he settles Philippi with Roman army veterans. So he says, hey, guys, who gave your, you, you bled for the empire. I'm going to incentivize you. I'm going to motivate you to go and live in Philippi. And what it meant to be a Roman colony, I just want to suggest to you two things that are important for us. To be a Roman colony meant not that you, you didn't live in Philippi in Greece. You lived essentially in Philippi as an extension of Rome. A colony was, was specifically oriented in Rome to spread the culture of Rome throughout the empire. So when you set foot in Philippi, it was like you were setting foot in Rome. And to be a Roman in this day and age was something to be proud of. It meant something to be a Roman citizen. You got rights and benefits that other people did not get. 
So it mattered not just to live in the empire, but it mattered to live in Philippi because you were a full-fledged Roman, just like you lived in Rome. And that is really important for our letter. And the other thing that's really important for our letter is that in a colony, you were expected to honor the emperor as a god. All right, the Romans had different relationships with ancient religions. Some they tolerated a lot, some not so much. But in Rome and in their colonies, Caesar is God. So in Rome and in a Roman colony, you are expected to participate in the veneration, the religious honoring of Caesar, which is gonna be really important for this letter. So we're gonna fast forward a few decades, 49 AD or or CE, whichever designation you prefer. A guy named Paul shows up in the town of Philippi. Now, Paul has had this radical encounter with this person named Jesus. His life gets turned upside down. Paul's Jewish, but he decides to travel the Mediterranean starting churches. And he shows up in Philippi around 42. And he wanders out uh, to a stream outside the city and he encounters a bunch of Jewish women. And he tells them about his encounter with Jesus. And they, re- they resonate with it. So they start this church. The church is led by, a, we think, by a wealthy businesswoman named Lydia. Church starts in Philippi. But because of Paul's mission and because he, he is filling, fulfilling what God has called him to do, Paul doesn't stay in one place very long. So he starts a church somewhere and then he moves on because that's what he's called to do is start churches. So he stays in Philippi for a little while, gets the church up and rolling, and then he's out. He's like, I'm on to the next place. And what he would do is as he moved from place to place, he would get communication from the churches that he started. You know, people wrote letters back then. And so Paul would find out that something's going on in the church that he started. So he'll write a letter. That's why we get the letter to the church at Philippians, the letter to the church at Corinth, the letter to the church at Rome. Because these are, these are uh, Paul's people. These are Paul's churches. And so he leaves Philippi and he wanders around a little bit longer and around 60 to 62, he sits down to write this letter. He's at the end of his life. He only has a few more years left in him. And he writes this letter to the church. Uh, we, we noticed in the text, he's in prison, all right? He's, already, he's in chains. And uh, there's some differing schools of thought of where he's in chains. He could be in chains in Ephesus, could be in chains in Rome. Uh, I think he's probably in chains in Rome based on some evidence. So 6062, he sits down and he writes this letter. And you can see from the text already that this letter has some distinguishing characteristics. Paul, you see the word joy. You see the word thankfulness. You see the word gratitude. There is something about this community and this church and this town that resonated very deeply with with Paul's heart, you know? And and it plays itself out in the letter. Now, if if you haven't been overloaded by history yet, just bear with me for a few more minutes because this stuff is all so important. It's so important. Um, Letter writing in the ancient world is an art and a science, It's an art and a science. Like we've distilled written communication kind of to the lowest common denominator. Let's be honest, right? 
Anybody like text people and you're like, I don't have time for Y-O-U-R. I only got time in my life for two letters, U-R, you know? <laughs> Who's got time for three letters of Y-O-U? I got time for one letter, U, right? We've distilled letter writing and, and written communication into its lowest common denominator because we have lots of ways to communicate. We have cell phones, we have email, hate email. Um, um, in the ancient world, all they had was letters. So letters were important. And so the people who really study this stuff will, will tell you that every ancient letter follows a specific pattern. It's the, it's the way you wrote letters. You know, and you started off and you said, this letter is from Paul. And this is my title. This is who I am. And then you would usually say something, whether you were Christian or not, you would say something, hey, I'm really grateful for you. And then you would say, here's why I'm, uh, why I'm writing this letter to you. And then you would go on. And, and people look at, at ancient letter after ancient letter after ancient letter, and they're like, man, they all follow the same pattern. Okay? And Paul, in a way, is no different. He, he writes this word. It's a letter. Uh, a lot of people call this specifically a letter of friendship, which to us means not much. But to scholars, a letter of friendship means certain things are going to show up in this letter. And for the most part, they do. Paul's pretty grateful. And if you know Paul at all, you know that he's not always grateful for his churches. My favorite line out of Paul's letters when he writes a church, and he's like, hey, I'm coming to your church some. Do you want me to show up with a stick to beat you with? Or do you want me to show up with like kind words? So Paul is not beyond being very irritated, okay? But in this letter, there is none of that. I am grateful for you. I think of you with such joy. It is a letter of friendship. Now, before we move on, I wanna tell you that the reason this is so important is because what's great about when you have patterns and genres and consistencies is when there's deviations from those patterns and those genres and those consistencies, it makes you sit up and go, oh, why did the writer deviate from this pattern? If the ancient world all wrote letters in the same way and Paul says, hey, I'm gonna put that aside. I'm gonna substitute something here that you're not used to. It makes you sit up and go, oh, wait a minute. He's, he's playing with something and he wants to communicate something to us. That's why all this is so important. Letters, genres mean something. And Paul loves to make points by by manipulating those genres. And that's exactly what he's gonna do for us this morning. So Paul writes the letter to declare his friendship to the church at Philippi. He also makes reference in here. He says, thank you. Thank you for your participation, right? It's a letter of thanks. It's a letter of thanks we know from the rest of the New Testament because the Philippians church is a very generous church. They give a lot to other churches and I find this very interesting because we also know uh, what we can tell from the rest of the New Testament is that the Philippian church is also a, not a very wealthy church. Isn't that interesting? They're a, they're, they are not a wealthy church, but they are a generous church. They don't have a lot, but what they do have, they share it lavishly with the other churches around the Mediterranean. So Paul thanks them for this. And overall, what Paul is doing with his manipulation of genre and with his using of this, this form of letter writing 
is Paul wants to ask, I think, the Philippians church three questions, okay, which we will see. The three questions are simply this. Um, He wants the Philippians to ask themselves, who has your allegiance, right? Who has your allegiance? What determines your values, your way of life? And who or what has your ultimate loyalty? Because remember where they are. They're a Roman colony. It's good to be a Roman colony. It's good to live in the empire. The empire has a way of life that Philippi embodies. And what's more, we live in a place that demands that we worship a Caesar as God. So what Paul wants to do is kind of poke on these things and say, okay, I get it. You're a Roman colony, and I get it that you can be proud of that. But what I want you to do is I want you to ask yourself, are you, elite, are you uh, loyal to Rome first, or are you loyal to the kingdom of God first? What has your highest allegiance, right? Jesus comes, by the way, if you don't know this, Jesus comes and his, his main message is the kingdom of God. If you read all the gospels, the kingdom of God laces through all of what Jesus preaches. Hey, the kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is with you. The kingdom of God is in you. The kingdom of God is among you. So Jesus is like, hey, there's a kingdom. Don't know if you caught that. So, I hope you're getting this thing, hope you're getting this idea that what it means to be Roman is a good thing. Uh, Philippi is a place full of proud Roman soldiers who have literally bled for the empire. And then Paul writes this letter and he starts this way in verse one, right? Dan pointed this out. This letter is from Paul and Timothy. And then what's the word he uses? Slaves of Christ Jesus. Okay. Hmm. Well, here's what's interesting. Paul writes, you know, a variety of different letters in the, in the New Testament. And I just want to shotgun through how the way he starts uh, the majority of his letters. So watch this, okay? First Corinthians, this letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be a what? Apostle of Christ Jesus. Next, second Corinthians, this letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. Next, Galatians, this letter is from Paul, an apostle. Next, this letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle. Are you getting the idea yet? Next, this letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be a what? Apostle of Christ Jesus. What do you think Paul referred to himself as? An apostle. Next, this letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. I think we have one more. This letter is from Paul, a slave of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. The point I'm trying to get at is that in every one of Paul's letters, he never just refers to himself as a slave except in this letter to a Roman colony and also a letter that he writes to the church at Rome. So in other words, in an environment where people are proud of their nationality and they're proud of what it means to be Roman, Paul, in the very first phrase of his letters, throws an incendiary word out there. And he says, look, I'm not claiming the title of apostle with you. You know what I am? I'm a slave. And in case you don't know, uh, the title of slave in the ancient world is not a whole lot greater than the title of slave in the modern world. So Paul intentionally chooses this word, I believe, to play 
on pride, national pride. Well, Paul says, look, I am an apostle. Don't know, how many church, don't know if you know how many churches I've started. I've started plenty. I'm an apostle, but that's not the way I'm gonna talk to you. I'm gonna lead by example. And even though I could claim the title of an apostle, messenger, that's what it means, messenger of God, I'm gonna set that aside and I'm gonna tell you, guess what? I was among you, I started this church, but I'm a slave. That's what he leads with. You don't think that he's not poking on, what, on which kingdom you live in? So how about verse two? He, he even ramps up uh, the, the intensity. Verse two, may God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. I'm not gonna cycle all through those letters again, but you'll just have to trust me when I tell you Paul never starts his letters with Lord Jesus Christ. It's Jesus, it's Christ, it's the Messiah. But when he's writing to a Roman colony that venerates the emperor, he says, no, 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 no. It's not Lord Caesar. It's Lord Jesus Christ. So he instantly is saying, look, I get it. You live in a place that honors the emperor as a God, but guess what? That's not the true emperor. That's not the true Lord. There is a kingdom that is higher than the one you see and the one you live in. And by the way, it's led by a guy named Jesus, Messiah, Christ. Does that make sense? One other phrase that he uses, I think very, spe very specifically in this, uh, in this opening text is he says in verse five, you've been my partners. And then again in verse seven, he uses the word again, the Greek word there is koinonia. You've been my partner. And so what Paul gets at here is I think, not, is he's saying, look, what I'm doing around the Mediterranean in terms of what, what you Philippians need to understand is not, an, not the matter of me, an apostle, and all my minions. It's me as a slave and you partnering with me. A koinonia is this amazingly rich Greek word. It's very important in the New Testament. And I love what it means. We use this phrase around E3. It means all, I think it means all in. It means all in. It means your time, your talent, your resources to be a partner with me. So koinonia is not like patting Paul on the back and slapping him on the butt as he goes on from Philippi to the next town. It's not just enough to say, Paul, we're gonna pray for you. Koinonia means we are in this thing together. It's like a business partnership. It means uh, walking the walk and talking the talk. It means, Paul, if you're going somewhere, if God is really up to what he's doing, I better reach into my pocketbook and I'm gonna put some money on the table for this. That's what koinonia means. And Paul says, we're in this thing together, which in so many ways pushes on Roman values. There's a Roman way of life. Every culture, every country, every empire has a way of life. And Paul says, yes, I get that. You have a way of life. You're proud to be a Roman. But guess what? There is another kingdom and another way of life that we are called to. And I don't know if I'm gonna push on anybody here, 
but I hope I'm not gonna shock anybody when I say that there is not an earthly kingdom or an earthly country or an earthly state or an earthly empire that 100% matches up to the kingdom of God. It does not. Now, I wanna be clear. Culture, country, states are gifts of God. They are in some ways expressions of who God is. But because human beings are involved in it, it gets a little twisted. It gets a little imperfect. And I think what Paul is saying in one sense, like, look, yes, there's lots of good stuff about being a Roman. You guys build great roads. But your way of life doesn't 100% match up with the way of life in the kingdom. And what Paul's asking is saying, take a step back and think about the gaps between those two ways of life. And this is where it brings us. Because, right, the Bible doesn't just speak to an ancient, uh, ancient culture. It speaks to us today. And so, uh, you know, I was trained or I, I, my undergraduate was as a sociologist. So this stuff comes pretty natural to me. If you wanted to Google what uh, the 10 core American values are, we have an American way of life. We do. We do. It means something to be an American, Right? means something to live in the Western Hemisphere. If you wanted to, to just Google what are the 10 core American values, this is what you would come up with, a list that looks something like this. We value individualism. The individual matters, right? It matters what you do with your life. You're important to this country. Equality, the notion of equality, it matters. Materialism matters. Getting things matters. It's how we measure our lives, Science and technology matters. It's the way we push our culture forward, right? And I get this. You're probably doing a lot what a lot of uh, first-year sociology students do, and you're thinking of all the exceptions in your head. Well, I don't value that. That's fine. It's true. You can always find exceptions. But painting in large strokes, this is what it means to have an American way of life, okay? For good and bad progress, change. We are going to get better. We are going to evolve. We're going to push forward into the future. We value work and we value leisure. You work hard and you play hard. And competition produces great things, okay? Just 10 core American values, right? Or a few of the 10, which is great. And these are expressions in some ways. These are laced through with God's character but it does not 100% match up with the kingdom of God, all right? And so I wanna suggest to you that the very first thing on that list is the first thing we're gonna talk about. The American culture of individualism says that I determine what's best for me and you determine what's best for you and you determine what's best for you. And when you all figure out, we all figure out what determines what's best for us, somehow the common good arises out of that. That's a very unique way of looking at the world and it's very American and it's very value, valuable. But Paul would say, you know what? There's another way to live. The kingdom would say, there's a life of deep connection. That it's not just about being an individual atom in the world, but it's about being deeply connected to other people. It's about, I can't always make up my mind what's best for me. It means I, sometimes I need to share my plans, not just with my wife, but with my friends and go, this is what I would like to do. I would like to be ambitious this way. I would like to 
to move. I would like to quit my job. I would like to do this. But can you tell me maybe, am I crazy? At which time most of our friends go, yeah, you're crazy. (laughs) You understand what I'm getting at here? Individualism is a gift from God. The fact that I can value all of you guys as individuals, as unique expressions of God the Father is a blessing from God. But that's not the only way to live. And to be clear, like the same questions that Paul asks the Philippians, the same questions he asks us. What determines your way of life? You know, is your highest allegiance to the American culture? You know, we live in in an amazing country and we're blessed to live in it. And we're blessed to have the culture that we do. But we need to recognize that there are gaps between our culture and the kingdom culture. And it's up to us to examine those and own up to them. Um, uh, I, I just wanna kind of close this by just sharing the way this works, you know, uh, for me. You know, just recently, my wife and I, Shana and I, um, we had been processing through a decision, right? And uh, for months, you know, we would talk amongst ourselves, talk to ourselves, and we'd say, man, you think God is doing this? I think God is doing that. This really seems like this is resonating deeply with us, right? And so um, we did what most Americans do was we made a decision and then we called our closest friends together to tell them about the decision we made. Anybody else do that? Let me gather some people around. We're gonna tell you about this decision that we made. Let me, let me uh, spoiler alert. That's not a life of connection, okay? A life of connection is not making a decision on my own and then letting my closest friends know what the decision is. Uh, So we called our our close friends together. We call them the tribe or we called them the tribe. We said, tribe, come on over. We gathered around in my living room and we said, hey, I'm gonna tell you guys about a decision we made. And uh, and it was was cool and they heard it. Uh, And then they said, you know, you had no, you know, they didn't say this exactly. This is my paraphrase. You had no business making this decision without input from us. You made this decision, Eric and Shana, without talking to anybody. Why didn't you include us in this process? And I'll tell you what, you, want to, you live a life of connection, you're gonna hear that from your friends. A life of connection is not about people who endorse every, every decision you make in your world. It's not about people who just kind of pat you on the back and go, oh man, that's a great idea for you to, you know, you know quit your job and divorce your family and then go, go, go move to, you know, the beach. Great decision. Living a life of connection is listening and going like, man, I don't think you've thought this through. And that pushes back on our individualism because there's something inside us naturally that says, wait a minute, I have a right to make my decisions the way, well, maybe, but kingdom and connection says that we're a body and that in some spiritual metaphysical way, I'm a part of you and you're a part of me. So my decisions are not my own. So you may have a tribe, you know, you may have people that, that, that you would say, man, I, I'm in deep relationship with. And uh, if you are in deep relationship, and let me tell you, if you are living a life of connection, you are gonna get pushed back on. You should have people who do not endorse every decision you make. You should have people who look at you sideways and go, bro, I think you better go back to the drawing board on this, right? And if you don't, 
I want to suggest that maybe you're not all the way there in connection yet. And you also got to be prepared that when you live a life of connection, uh, when we shared those things with, with our friends, there were tears. We had to listen, people looked back on this and like, you hurt us. This decision hurts us. And the way you've made this decision hurts us. And as a, as a human being, I don't like to hear that. I don't like to have my friends look me in the eye and go, you hurt me because of this. But when you leave, live a connected life, that's the reality. Where people have the right to look at you and go, this, your decisions have ramifications for other people. And it hurts. You gotta deal with that. And then of course, lastly, I would just, you know, you gotta, you gotta know people, people have to know your junk, right? They gotta know your junk. You live a life of connection, get ready. Because you're gonna be like, you know, the people who know the way I'm made up, people who know my blind sides. I've got them. I've got tons of blind sides. Some of us live a life in a connection. If, if, if these people do not know, if they can't tap you on the shoulder and go like, Eric, I appreciate that you're thinking this, but I know you and I know this is the way you think, uh, you got a blind side here. You got a blind spot, you know? And again, the individualism says like, you know what? You know, I got this thing. I'll just Google, I'll, I'll go to the internet and it'll tell me how to do this. No. When you're in a life of connection, people know your blind spots and you got to value them. You got to listen. You got to put down that, that pride that says, I know what's best for me. And you got to say, well, this isn't my, just my life to live, okay? This is what Paul starts with, out, out of the gate, and I wanna to suggest to you that the language he's using here is so intentional where he was like, man, yes, I get the Roman way of life. I get the American way of life. I get whatever subculture you identify with. Yes, all that's valid. But Paul says, measure that against the kingdom. Measure that against how that kingdom plays itself out in your life, right? So what I want to do is uh, I want to invite Chuck and Margie up here for uh, just a moment uh, to kind of close things out. Because if you're looking for first steps to live a life of connection, the mechanism that we have at E3 for living a life of connection is this thing called growth groups. How many people are in a growth group? Okay, you really should be in a growth group, okay? Like this is the thing that we have sort of bet the farm on to say like, if you wanna live a life of connection, you find a group of people, they meet in houses, some of them meet here, and you share your life and you learn a little bit and you get pushed on and you pray. And if you're in Chuck's, you probably cry a lot. <laughs> so these people, they're not, they're not staff, they're volunteers. They lead this ministry. Chuck, they both empower growth group leaders. They connect people. And they're gonna be hanging around. If you want to be in a growth group, if you wanna know more about what this looks like, what it feels like, they're gonna be out at the Pathways booth, right, after this. They'd love to talk with you. And what I just asked uh, them to do is to just close our gathering with a, a, a short prayer. You don't have to preach a sermon. Chuck, Chuck's already <laughs> crying. Um, you don't have to preach or anything, but I'm just gonna ask Chuck if you would pray for our community uh, in, in, in the life of connection that God is calling us to, so. Hello, <laughs> Father. We just uh, we just thank you, God, for the leadership of this church. First and foremost, God, but pray for Eric. just thank you for Eric, Lord, that uh, he has uh, just given himself to you to be able to have you speak through him to us, God. 
God, I just thank you for this community that we do have. Where we can, where we can be who we are, and have people show their love and understanding, God, through grace, through you, Lord. God, we just, I just lift us up to you, Lord. God, as we go out into our day to day and into our week, God, I just ask that you would show us, Lord that you would help us to see past the environment, the natural stuff that we might tend to look at and see the opportunities that you're presenting to us, God, to connect in the very places that you bring and put us, Lord. Hmm. So God, just take us where we need to be today and through our week and open our eyes. Even more important, God, open our hearts because through that, God, you are going to give us greater understanding of what it's like to be in family. So, God, we just thank you. We appreciate you so much. We love you, Lord. We thank you for your word and what it does to us as it goes as we uh, take it in. And uh, we just, we love you and we give you this day in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You guys have a great week. We will see you next Sunday.